Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel, chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of God. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made me with an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of the spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Our Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us so we can gather together and look to your word. May we, in your word today, see what you have for us Recognize again the greatness of your kingdom that you promised to David and the benefits of that that come to us. May we be faithful in understanding your word, applying your word, and diligently serving you in light of what we learn. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome this morning. Today we're looking at the last days, the last moments in the story of David given to us in 2 Samuel. And as we do, we come to this passage, and we've been for six months or so looking at the story of David, and through this, we've seen many events, stories that we're often familiar with, and we read the stories beginning with David and his confrontation and victory over Goliath, and the other stories of David being anointed the king of Israel, the story of David's battle against the Philistines, against uh, Saul himself, and eventually David being, becoming the king of Israel. And soon after that, we see David his incident with Bathsheba, all of these stories, we read them, and we often, what we do in the sermons is make moral application from these stories. And that's a good thing to do, but it's not sufficient. In other words, a lot of times what we do when we read these Old Testament stories is to understand them for the moral lesson we can draw from them. When we do that, we often ignore or overlook the deeper theological point being made. In other words, these stories of the Old Testament are not simply like Aesop's fables that have a point to them in such a way that we read them that way. You might remember the events of Jesus after his crucifixion and resurrection in Luke chapter 24 where he's on the Emmaus Road and he comes across a couple of men who were reminiscing over the events of that day. Jesus asked him kind of like, what's going on? And they says, well, how would you heard the news? The Messiah that came, Jesus, he was crucified, but this morning we found he's resurrected. And all the community's talking about that. And Jesus, who wasn't understood to be uh, who he was by them, uh, confronts them. And he tells them, the problem with all of you is you've always read the Old Testament, but you never understood that all of these stories pointed to me. 
All of these stories about a coming prophet pointed to me, Jesus, as a true prophet. All of those stories about a priest pointed to me as the true priest. All of those stories about the coming king, even David, pointed to me as the true king. Those stories of the servant were pointing to me as the true servant. And as we read these stories, as we've gone through the life of David, we recognize that that's the point these stories have always had. They're all pointers to Jesus. And when we read these stories in light of that, we gain a deeper understanding of what they're about. Now, this is not some sort of a mystical understanding. It's not some of it, something allegorical. It's the point of these stories to show us that not only are they illustrations for things we should do or things we should not do, but they're also stories that show us that God has always had a plan, and that plan always brings us to Jesus himself. He is the end of history, the point of all of this. And so when we come to these last words of David in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23, we see here David reminiscing. Now, these are called the last words of David, and I don't want to disagree with that, but they're not the last words of David. There's more than one way we can talk about the last words of someone. These are the last public words of David, the public words he made known to those around him. But we're going to see at the end, I think, some private words that David had with his own son, Solomon. But let's take a look at these words of David. What did David have to say here about God? Now, again, in chapter 23, verse 1, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. We see what David's doing here already is pointing to the greatness of the kingdom and the certainty of the kingdom. This is all pointing to the fact that where there's a coming king, there's one coming. He says, I'm coming. Now, been in Colorado the past couple of weeks. You may know that CU Buffaloes have a new football coach, Deion Sanders, who famously makes the words, I'm coming, and I'm bringing my own luggage. Well, he's not the first one to say that. That's what this Bible story's all been about. It's about a coming king, and he's bringing his own luggage too. He's bringing those who will rule and reign with him. And so David here is reminiscing about this, reminding the people that that's what this is all about. Again, continuing... The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His words on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. So David is doing what he can here to point to the promise of this king, the greatness of this king. You might remember from 2 Samuel 7, that's where God anointed David to be king. That's where he made the promise of the Davidic kingdom to David, that not only will David be a king, but his heirs after him will rule and reign also. And that's the greatness of this kingdom that we see. But now it continues on in verse uh, 3, it continues, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the light of morning, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Here he describes the attractiveness of this kingdom, the beauty of this kingdom, that in fact we have a kingdom that's magnificently beautiful. And we all love a good sunrise in the morning. We all love the sunshine of the day or the rain as it falls and the grass grows. This is a picture that David's giving of the greatness, not only of David's kingdom, but of the promised Messiah that will come through David. And that ultimately, as we know, is Christ himself. 
But there will be those who oppose him. And that's what the last parts of these verses get to. Again in verse 6. But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away. For they cannot be taken with hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear. And they are utterly consumed with fire. So here there is the point that the kingdom is exclusive. Not all are going to be a part of the kingdom. Only those who are true and remain faithful to Christ. Now these are the words of David. David gives these words, these last words, to the people of Israel. So they will remember the point of all of it. It's not that he, David, is king, but that David is the beginning of a line of kings who will wind their way to the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate king that will rule and reign. So that's the point of the first part of this chapter. But now we come to the next verse. And as we do, we see it, in many ways, shift in a lot of ways. We have a description here of David's mighty men. Now we're going to quickly work our way through some parts of these verses. There's the first three mighty men that we're going to see. We'll talk about them briefly. But then focus on the second story that's told in this section. So we begin in verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bahashabeth, a uh, uh, Tekemanite, he was the chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 who he killed at one time. Okay, that's the first guy. And it only gives us this one-sentence story about what he did. And it shows that he's a great warrior. Verse 9, and next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahoi. And he was with David when he defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. And he rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And David brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. So here we have a second story of Eleazar, who again is strong in battle and defeats the Philistines all by himself. He does this great deed. These are, why he's, these are the mighty men. Then we have the third story. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite, the Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where, he, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. All right, so this third guy, Shammah, his greatness is that one day in a battle, the Philistines were pressuring forward, and there was a lentil field, and he defended the field of lentils. Now, there's some farmer out there, we'll never know his name, who was thrilled to death that at this point, his lentil field was defended. And Shammah makes his name great there because that's where he drew the line and said, this is as far as you're coming, Philistines. I'll draw the line here. So we have these first three names, these first three great men, the mighty men of David. That's the first three. But then we have perhaps an anonymous pair, anonymous trio actually, that begins in verse 13. Let's take a look at this story, 13 to 17. And three of the 30 chief men were down, went down and came upon a harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. The story here just established here this basic, uh, simple line. David is at uh, the, ca the cave of Adullam. Now, we've seen David there before. Uh, David uh, spent some time there always 
when he was being pressured by the Philistines, that's where David would go with his men. The Philistines are in Bethlehem. They're in Jerusalem. Rephaim is just a few short miles from Jerusalem. So the Philistines, early in David's reign as king, didn't see David's kingdom as very strong, and so they pressured the Israelites, pressured David and his men outside of their own hometown, outside of the capital, into the desert, into the cave of Adullam. And that's where David finds himself. So the Philistines are strong, and they're garrisoning uh, the town of Bethlehem, and by that it means that they've got soldiers there. They're protecting the town so that uh, the uh, Israelites couldn't make their way in. And this is where David utters these interesting words. Uh, in verse 15, and David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. He says these interesting words. I wished I could have a drink of water from Bethlehem. Now, we might wonder, why is David so interested in water from Bethlehem? Is it because he's thirsty? And if we read this as though David is simply thirsty, we're missing entirely the point of the story. It's not because he's thirsty. He had water where he was. He could find water easy anywhere. That wasn't that difficult in Israel. He was wanting to be home. He was wanting to be home, not because he's simply homesick. It's much, much more than that. It's because God had promised him a kingdom. His kingdom was to be from his hometown, from Bethlehem, from Jerusalem. That's where he was supposed to be. And David is now sensing that there's something wrong here. God promises that I'm going to be a king. Yet what kind of a king am I if I'm wandering the desert in fear? What kind of a king am I if I'm not able to rule for my own home? David is wrestling not with a lack of water, but he's wrestling with the seemingly unfulfilled promise of God. God had promised him a kingdom, and it's not much of a kingdom when you find yourself on the desert. And so he's wanting to drink water and be at home. Now what happens here is telling. We continue on. Then the three mighty men, perhaps the three we just talked about, broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. So three of the mighty men hear David longingly, sighing, asking for a drink of water from Bethlehem. And those three guys grab a wineskin and battle gear and they go to Bethlehem. And perhaps two of them, we don't have the story told in full. Perhaps two of them fought their way into Bethlehem, made their way to where the water was. One of them took the, the, the water skin and filled it with water, and they brought it back to David. Now, are these guys just doing this on a dare? Certainly not. They're not that foolish. They knew they could get water from anywhere. What were they up to? What they were doing is they were showing David that God is on our side that God is with us. I believe that these three men were acting based on the promise that God had made. They were acting on that. And so they go to Bethlehem to retrieve this water to show David, we're going to have a victory. And God protects them as they go in. They, both, they all three go in. They all three come out with the water. And so they give this water to David. And it's showing David, we're not defeated. We will make our way in and you will be a king and you will rule from Israel, not from the desert. And so they give the water to David. Now, what does David do? But he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord. Okay, now the story gets a little bit more strange again. They bring this, they go all the way to Bethlehem to get this water. 
They bring the water out and they give it to David. And what's he do? He dumps it on the ground. You can see the water puddling up on the ground and then slowly seeping into the sand, into the desert, until it's all gone. Now, why would David do that? It's because David understood what was going on here, just as those three men understood. David was responding, recognizing that this was a promise from God. It says not that he just poured it out, but what's it say? He poured it out for the Lord. He poured it out to the Lord. He continues on and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in to risk their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. And so the story is being told here to show us that God had not only made a promise to David, but he was now going to fulfill it. And David understood that by bringing this water back, these three were showing David there's a promise and showing David that God will fulfill his promise to us. And David now responds in kind, offering it as something of an offering to God. He dumps it out so that God will recognize David didn't need it for himself, but he was giving it back to the Lord. So David is now answering this call. David is now recognizing that this is a gift. And so the first thing we can see is this: in this is anything that we think we earn is really a gift from God. These three didn't earn the gift by being great fighting soldiers, by battling their way in based on their own effectiveness, but they were successful because God made them successful. And just as they brought the water out and gave it to David, David recognized that this was God's provision for all of them. And so it's not a matter of trusting on ourselves. And a lot of times we do that. We want to trust on our own gifts, our own abilities, uh, you're big and strong. You can do a great job. That's not what it's about. You've got a great brain. You can be successful in life. That's not what it's about. What David is saying is that this is a matter of trust. This is a matter of recognizing that all that God does for us is a gift to us. And so all that we have is not ours. What David does is he gives it back to the Lord. Now, a lot of people want to feel like, you know, everything I earn is mine. I should hoard it and keep it all for myself. David is showing us a lesson here, to give it back to the Lord out of sacrifice, because God's the one who gave it to you to begin with. And that's the first lesson I think we see out of this. Secondly, we can see that we need to learn to trust those who are themselves pointing us to God. What David does here in receiving this water and dumping it out to the Lord is to say that God is the one who really matters. And so David's not hoarding this to himself. Now, if you watch Christians on, you know, televangelists on TV, you might see a lot of them who are collecting a lot of great wealth. All their, their talk is about you sacrifice and give to me. And they grow great kingdoms. They've got great uh, estates and plains and all of this. That's not what David wanted here. That's not what it's about. It's not about growing it to ourselves. It's about giving it back to God. Here's another thing we see. David simply made this simple wish. This, this sigh he had when he said how he longed for a drink from Bethlehem. And these three men go, and they get it. The king's wish was their command. David didn't tell him to do this. There wasn't a discussion, should we really do this or not, or how are we going to go about doing this? David's simple wish was their command. And in the same way, that should be true for us as well. When we recognize that the, hearts of, the heart of God 
what God really wants out of us and respond in kind, that's what being a true believer is. A lot of people act out of religious duty. They think that this is all about religion, which is to do certain things to get the benefits from God, to work in such a way that we receive the benefits that he's promised. And so a lot of religions have people working diligently so they can receive the blessing of God. Instead, true religion, as James would say, what we're talking about here is recognizing the heart of our king and responding in love in like kind. And when you learn to respond to God out of a heart of love, it entirely changes the way you view life, the way you do things. It's not simply about doing things to get things. It's about giving to God because of what he's given to us. And so all of what we do is about responding in such a way. Now, we can have rules. And what you do when you go to work is you learn the rules of the business, what the boss requires, what you need to do. And you do those things to stay on, God, on the boss's good side. But as a believer, it's all about responding to God out of love, just like we do with relationships. When we talk about the people we love, we don't try and figure out rules, but we want to be thoughtful and like detectives and figure out what will make this person happy, what will give, give them joy. And that's what we respond to. That's how we give out of love. And in the same way, we recognize that God has given to us in that manner. He's given to us out of his love, out of his heart for us. And so it's not about religion. It's about doing what we do because we love God. That's our true duty is to love God. And then we see also here, David at this time is in a cave, the cave of Adullam. He finds himself isolated from his own place, not in the location that he believed God wanted him to be, but instead he finds himself away from Bethlehem, away from Jerusalem, in the desert. Nevertheless, at this moment, he trusts in God. He sees that God will fulfill his promise, and he begins to respond in kind. And when the three men bring the water back and he pours it out to the Lord, he's doing this as something of an offering to say, I will trust the Lord and see now that he will give us the victory. And so this, I think, is a turning point in the life of David, in the life of Israel. Remember, this story is not at the end of his life. This goes back early in, in his reign. And so David now recognizes that God will give us the victory. And so in this, in all of our lives, we find ourselves often in the desert. We find ourselves in a place where we don't see all that we think God has promised to us. But that's okay. Because nevertheless, we can recognize that even where we're at, there's a promise that God has made that does come to us. That's what being a true believer is, to recognize that those promises, they're coming. God's coming. Christ is coming. And he's bringing his own luggage. And we will benefit from that. And so David is here learning to trust in the Lord, in the Lord's promise. And so this story is kind of, kind of unfolds in a strange way. But in the end, we see it's all about David and his men learning to trust in God and what he's promised to them. There's a couple other fellows that are mentioned, beginning in verse 18. Abishai, uh, he kills a few men. And then Benaiah, uh, he does as well. These are the great men. Now, beginning in verse 24 through 39, we're not going to read these names. You can look them over real quick and see it's quite a collection of old Hebrew names. These are the list of the great men of David. These are his mighty men. But let's go to chapter 24. 
We come to chapter 24, and we have David taking a census. Now, this is an interesting story. What's going on here? David takes a census. God gets mad. God brings punishment. This is 2 Samuel. Remember that First and Second Samuel was originally just a book of Samuel. It was cut in half because scrolls could only handle so much writing that it took two scrolls, and so it's now called First and Second Samuel. But the books of Samuel are stories about the greatness of David as king. Now, if you're writing a biography to explain how great a king David was, would you end it with a story that has David committing the sin of ordering a census and then God bringing judgment on the Israelites because of that? I mean, that's not much of hagiography. It's not much of a, a story making David a great man. So what's really going on here? We see what's going on is that David has now learned to trust in God in such a way that he never had before. So let's again take a look at the story of the census. We begin in chapter 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. Now, this is complicated. You can go to First Chronicles 21 and see the parallel story there. It appears there that Satan is the one who instigated David to do this, to take this census. The point is, God said, don't do it, and David does it. So a census is taken. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. Now, Joab, he's a bad guy. We think he's a very bloodthirsty guy. He's a murderer. Verse 3, but Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Joab is asking David, are you sure you want to do this? Even Joab, the bloodthirsty military commander, told David, this is not a smart thing to do. Joab knew. Verse 4, but the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And it says they go up through the land, they go through the north, and it takes some time before they get back. And in verse 9, we find out in Israel there's 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and in Judah there's 500,000. So David has numbered the men that are of military age and ability, and he finds out he's got a pretty good army. Now, why is this a sin? Why is this a problem? And I think that's the first thing we have to see here. Because when we read stories like this at first blush, it seems that God bringing judgment down on David for counting the number of military men seems a bit unreasonable, seems a bit unfair, seems quite excessive, in fact. There's a few things we need to keep in mind as we read this story. Number one, that God had told David not to do it. And that's good enough. You see, we have children, right? You have children. Do you ever tell your child, do this, do this, or don't do that, don't do that? And they say what? They say, why? Give me a reason why. Well, maybe at some age you begin to give them reasons why, but at some earlier age you tell them, because I said so. And that's good enough. Now, the kids will challenge it. And if they only do what you say when they agree with you, they're not doing it out of obedience. They're doing it out of agreement. If they do what they want to when they don't agree with you, then they're doing it out of disobedience. 
And in the same way as we as believers, if we only do what God says us, commands us to do, when we agree with him, we're not doing it out of obedience, we're doing it out of agreement. And there's a lot of believers, in fact, that have spent most of their life never really obeying God. We truly show we're obeying God when we do it, even when we don't understand. And so we can tell our child, you know, look, you're nine years old, I'm 40. I tell you to do this, just do it because I tell you that. Well, why? Because I told you. I don't have to give you a reason why. And if you don't do what your parents say, if you don't do what the adults say, then you may not live to be 10. And that's all the reason you have to give them. Now, the same is true here. God told David, don't count people. Why? What was the problem with that? The problem seems to be here this. By counting the number of soldiers, Israel, under David's leadership, were planning now to build an empire like the empires of the world had done. Remember the history of the ancient world, beginning with perhaps the ancient Babylonians under Hammurabi, and then the Assyrians north of him, after him, and then the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. They were all about building strength, building kingdoms. And then Assyria after that comes down. And then who beats the Assyrians? Well, the Babylonians. And then the Babylonians are there for a time until the Persians come. And the Persians under Darius conquers the known world. And then the Greeks under Alexander the Great, he comes and conquers the Persians. And then the Romans under Caesar and Pompey, they conquer the Greeks. And it goes on and on, kingdom building. And what David was doing here when he's counting the military men is to measure the military strength that Israel might have. You ever play the game of risk? Remember that table game? I love playing this with my kids. We play the game of risk. And what it was all about was casting die until you build up armies on some country of the world, and when you had sufficient strength, you would then execute a blitzkrieg against the others, and you would shoot through the others trying to conquer the world, and it was all about conquering lands, and that's how all the nations of the earth were. God didn't raise up Israel, you see, to be a terror to the world. He raised them up to be a blessing to the world. That's what Psalm 48 is about. Deuteronomy 4 talks about Israelites being a blessing to the people of the world. And so God had called them to bless the world, not to terrorize them. And what David was doing is to, to now make Israel's conquest of the world another idol. And God now saw what he was doing, and that's why this judgment comes. God was smashing the idol that David was setting up for himself and the Israelites. God had no interest in Israel conquering the other lands. God told them the borders of what their promised land would be, and that was it. He needed no more than that. And so David orders this census, and when he does, he realizes very quickly that this is a sin and that God is now angry because of it. So look at verse 10, chapter 24, verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord... Please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now, David, after the numbers come back, he then thinks through it and realizes, oh, this was a bad idea. God told me not to do this, but I did it anyway. Do you ever find yourself in a position where you knew what not to do, but you did it anyway? Or you knew what to do and you didn't do it? That's where David's at, and he realizes he's made a mistake. Verse 11 and when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, so God, Gad, 
comes with God's word and says, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you, and these are three judgments. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in the land? Or will you flee three months before the fo your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return him who sent me. So God gives Gad a message and says three things. Either one, three, three years of famine. Now what's that mean? That's basically like a recession. In other words, when famine comes to the land, you can no longer support yourself. You can no longer feed yourself. You now have to rely on others. You have to take the wealth that you've accumulated and trade it for food from other nations. This is the problem that Jacob and the Israelites had, and they had to flee down to Egypt to begin with. The same thing would come. Then the second option was be chased through the land by foreign military. You see what both of these are doing? Both of these options are crushing any imperialistic impulse that David would have had. You're not going to conquer the world. You're going to be either under a famine, subservient and colonized by other countries, or other armies are going to overrun you. The third option was that a pestilence would come, a plague, for three days. So David has a choice to make. Which of those three should he choose? And so it continues on. So the Lord sent, a, and David said, in verse 14, Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. You see, the first two options would be to fall into the hand of other men, fall into the hand of those nations that supply you with food, or fall into the hand of those armies. David is sophisticated theologically here, and he says, let's fall into the hand of God, God will bring the pestilence. Now, there's a lot of people that have a one-dimensional view of God. God is either a God of judgment, a God of oppression, a God that loves to bring punishment, and that's how they view God. That's all God really is. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, there are those who view God as a God of love, a God of generosity, a God who accepts you the way you are. Just come to God the way you are and stay who you are. Now, David is sophisticated enough to know that God is much more complex than that. On the one hand, God's justice and judgment and law is true, and it will be fulfilled in the end. But David also knew that God was a God of mercy and love and patience. So David entrusts the punishment to God's hand, not men's hands. He says, bring the pestilence. Bring the plague. And when he does, verse 15, So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. 70,000 men die. Doesn't that seem harsh? How could God do that? Well, remember, these 70,000 men were men that David had designed, had plans for, to use them to wage battle against others, to oppress others around them. They were going to die anyway in battle, but this is a judgment that came. 
because of David's actions. And David recognized that. David knew what he had done. So God's judgment comes. We continue on. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aranah, the Jebusite. Verse 17, the David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. David recognizes that he is the great shepherd of Israel. And he's the one that made the the decision that would bring judgment on all of his sheep. And so he says to God, you should bring judgment against me and not against them. Well, that sounds fair enough. That's not what God does. But in a different way, it is what God did, isn't it? Because Jesus is our great shepherd. And the great judgment that comes because of our sin was laid upon him as a great shepherd. So you see, in the end, David wasn't the great shepherd of Israel. It's Jesus Christ himself who is. And so judgment comes ultimately on Christ for the sins, not just of David, but of all of our sins. That's the great promise of the Davidic kingdom. That's a great promise that all of these stories have led up to. And so in verse 18 and following, David builds an altar. He goes up to the threshing floor here of the Jebusite. He offers to buy it. The guy says, no, I'll give it to you. David says, no, I'm not going to take it from you. I will buy it from you. And there David makes a sacrifice. First Chronicles tells us that this is at Mount Moriah. This is a place where in Jerusalem today there's the Temple Mount, the Dome of the Rock. This is a place where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, or, or, the, the moment there before God stayed his hand. This is a place where Christ sacrificed himself on Mount Moriah. This is where this happens, where the ultimate sacrifice is made. And David now sees this. The Lord protects him. There's great mercy that comes from God, and it comes from God because of the promise that he has made. And we're here today wondering, what is this all about? Is it all about stories to be moralistic? We see in these stories as we read, as we read them, they're not moralistic, but they're redemptive. They're stories about how God has made a plan how God has established a way for us to escape the consequences of our own sin, just as he ultimately allows David and his people to escape the consequences of their sin. And so ultimately, the Davidic king is Christ himself. Now, if you turn over to Second, uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, we have the death, the death of David. We see here the last, last words of David. He gives instructions to Solomon. Now, Solomon turned out not always to be a good guy. Solomon, very wise in many ways, made many foolish decisions that brought horrible consequences. But in verse 10, then David slept with his fathers, that means he died, and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, And his kingdom was firmly established for a time. Solomon, because of his sin, his kingdom would not survive him, but we'd be divided. So Jeroboam, a military commander, would take the north. Rehoboam would take the southern kingdom of Judah. The kingdom would be divided. But ultimately, the book of Matthew explains the ultimate king, the ultimate Davidic king, is Jesus himself. 
And Jesus himself becomes the one who fulfills the great promises of God's kingdom. And so that's what these stories are all about. All of them, again, point to Jesus. All of them have this redemptive aspect saying that Jesus is the true Messiah, the true bringer of God's peace, the one who truly does bring God's love to us and who does bring judgment, but who laid it on Christ himself so that we can be forgiven of our sins. That's the big story that we see in the life of David. That's the story of the Bible. And that's the story that God has invited you into. He invited you to participate in his love by accepting Christ as your Savior. And I would encourage you to give thought to that today. Let's stand as we dismiss in prayer. Our Father, as we consider this life of David, we realize that David was a flawed man. But in the end, the greatness of the story is not that he simply sinned again, but that he recognized his sin and turned to you, that he recognized his failure. This time he didn't need a prophet like Nathan whacking him on the head, telling him, you sinned against Bathsheba. But he saw here his own sin and turned to you. And so for those of us here today, may we be a people also that recognize our sin and our failures. May we quickly, diligently turn our hearts to you in repentance because of your love for us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.